Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How's the Pressure? I am your host, Haley Winter, and this week I am bringing in Karin Gutner to talk about movement therapy and how we as body workers can learn from that practice and add value to the work that we do with our clients. So Karin is the founder of the Art of Motion Training in Movement, which is a renowned training organization for contemporary Pilates and Sling's myofascial training, which is based in Switzerland and Australia. Her resume is quite impressive, with certifications in massage and gyrokinesis, Pilates, yoga, personal training, and many, many more. Now, without taking the next several minutes to list off all of her accomplishments and accreditations, hopefully it is suffice to say she is incredibly experienced and a motivated learner through and through. I also want to acknowledge that this is part one of our conversation, as we had so much content to cover that I thought it would be best to break it up into two episodes. That being said, we do cover quite a bit in this first part, everything from what it means to move, how it affects our relationship with our body, and to the value of conscious movement training. And finally, we get to a little more technical and discuss the difference between proprioception and interception. So I really enjoyed my conversation with Corinne. She has so much energy and excitement around learning about the body and how it works. And not only is her work inspiring, but her zest for life is contagious as well. She also has the honor of being my first guest to lead my audience through some movements during the episode. So I'm curious about how that lands for you. And please do send me an email through the website at www.howistheprecture.com and let me know if it worked for you. So I give you my conversation with Karin Gutner. All right, Karin, thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's excellent. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to have you on this for this conversation because this is the first time I'm talking to someone about specifically around movement and how we bring movement into our practice and, and how we bring it into our perspective when working with clients. So I'm uh, excited to hear what you have to say about that subject. But before we get into that too deeply, can you give my listeners a bit of context uh, and tell us how you got into movement therapy and then your connection to some of my previous guests uh, who my listeners may know, like Tom Myers and James Earls? Mm. <laughs> so I need to travel back in time a little bit, or actually quite a bit, about 25 years ago, when I lived in Switzerland. I'm Swiss, and my first occupation was in shop window and interior design. And just a side of it, I was teaching movement classes. And I think that that love for art and, and working with my hands, my body, it, it's still there. It's just the, the ratio has shifted now. So when I moved to Australia, and that was in 1999, I became a full-time teacher. And to teach full-time and really find out, um, you know, where I belong in the realms of movement teaching, I taught not only a lot, but I did a lot of different education in personal training, in, of course, um, Pilates comprehensive certifications for yoga, but also a lot of fitness-related um, education courses at a very, very broad spectrum, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And then I met a, a wonderful woman in 2002. Her name is Kimberly Garlick. 
and she really evoked my love for Pilates. From there, I started to teach more and more Pilates, also worked for Kimberly, who at the time had a school for contemporary Pilates education. And then eventually in 2004, my twin sister and I, and my mother and my father, we founded Art of Motion. Art of Motion is a, a training organization for contemporary Pilates and now also for anatomy trains in motion and slings myofascial training. That's way later. So we founded the school and um, I started to teach or started to do education courses in contemporary Pilates that I wrote myself. So I wrote a certificate for, a diploma, an advanced diploma in contemporary Pilates for physiotherapists and for movement teachers. And at one point, very early in 2004 or 2005, I, <laughs> I got Tom's book, Anatomy Trains, in my hands. And I remember exactly where I sat in a very remote place in Western Australia in a Dharma center with my now ex-husband. still love him, but yeah, at the distance. But I sat there with him in front of his tent where he lived and I held Tom's book and I understood very little, <laughs> but I understood enough to, to realize this is important. This is going the, to change the way I teach, I move, I practice, or I think about movement. And I also thought, I'm going to meet this man, <laughs> which seemed very far-fetched at the time. But eventually I did meet Tom. Now, I used it at the time to, I used uh, the anatomy trains concept, sorry, to explain the anatomy of contemporary Pilates exercises. And that worked really well, especially for the physiotherapists and osteopaths and so forth. And it worked so well that I structured a workshop that I called Pilates and Slings, Slings referring to the myofascial meridians. So I taught this workshop and, and presented it at conferences. It was really well received. I was like, oh, I need to know more. So I booked into the first available course that I could get in. And that was in Dublin with James Earls. And you have spoken with James. He is just, um, yeah, he's an amazing, he's an amazing uh, teacher, but also a, just uh, an absolutely beautiful person so James absolutely convinced I was like okay now I need to know a lot more so I did the whole um, kinesis myofascial integration now it's called anatomy trains structural integration certification with Tom and with James in Oxford so I traveled a lot to Oxford I did the certification while I was doing it I was documenting exploring translating ideas from the bodywork education into movement. And as I got certified and had spoken more with James, spoken a lot more with Tom, I had to do something I really didn't want to do. And maybe you can relate and someone else listening can relate. I had to take my really nice course in Pilates and Slings. I put in a lot of work and I had to throw it into the bin <laughs> because it just didn't cut it. It didn't do the anatomy trains concept or the structural integration work justice 
at all, so I had to start fresh. And um, Tom and I speaking about anatomy trains in motion and to develop a course that was basically the beginning of starting fresh and different. So you undertook the entire structural integration certification with Tom, and you did that without the intention of becoming a body worker. That's right. That seems like a really significant investment. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, cu I'm curious why, what, what brought you to the point where you just needed to do that without knowing that you weren't going to actually use it um, in the way that it was quote-unquote intended? Hmm. You know when something is just clear it was intellectually and somatically clear when i did the training with james in dublin the anatomy trains training this was a bodywork course so at the time i think it was called anatomy trains for um therapists and so i was i found myself in this um bodywork setting being completely out of my comfort zone because I had no hands-on skills, yet sensing the touch, feeling the effects of the, the structural bodywork in my own body, it was like, ah, there is so much more than using the myofascial meridians, superimposing them onto exercises, maybe explaining the anatomy. There is so much more because I felt it. And I got a little bit of an understanding and the decision was just clear. And my sister, my twin sister, she runs the business. She, she organizes my schedule. She wasn't happy when I said, listen, <laughs> for the next 18 months, I'm going to travel to Oxford a lot and I need to go right now. <laughs> she, she had to do a lot of shuffling um, to, to make this work. But it was very clear, if I want to do this, I need to learn from the source and I need to embody structural integration to be able to translate it into movement. And it took me eight years still there. So it was absolute necessity. So what was something that you learned specifically from translating structural integration anatomy trains into movement? I think it's what you just said. It's, a translation it's not a mirroring what I sometimes see that someone looks at a bodywork technique and then they want to mirror the the same technique using a prop but bodywork is a conversation between two intelligent beings but me and the ball or me and the roller, that's hopefully one intelligent being and an inanimate object. So it's not the same. And if for someone who is speaking more than one language, it's very clear I can translate individual words using a dictionary, one-to-one. -one. But meaning, the translation of meaning requires a lot more. It requires a deep understanding of, of the subject matter. And that's really what I learned when I literally translated, or <laughs> that's a bit big, <laughs> attempted to translate the meaning of structural integration the way I understand it into a comprehensive movement education 
takes time, but it's a translation of meaning, not a mirroring of techniques. Uh, that's, I think, a very important distinction. Uh, and I really appreciate the metaphor of the language because there is something um, obscure than the actual word-to-word -word when you talk about a translation. So much is about the context and about, you know, even within a language, between uh, different dialects or between different areas of a country, some words will mean different things. Exactly right. Yeah. So I'm curious if if all of this education in structural integration and and the work with anatomy trains, has it changed your definition of movement? Or do you have... Uh, uh, the same definition of movement before as, and after? Oh, God, no. <laughs> it, it very much changed. Um, and it, it's a very good question. So let me actually start with the body or our relationship to the body, because many of us think and communicate that we have a body, but instead we are a body. We are also our mind and emotional states. But I think the distinction is, is really powerful. Thinking that I have a body actually says that there is a me or an I, whatever the definition might be, and that other person has, or that thing I am has a body. And thinking and saying I am a body is a first person experience of myself as a whole living feeling thinking being yeah we're starting to move into a little bit of the the gray areas in terms of philosophy and and consciousness right uh, the 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 separation of the ego and and the physical body uh, or or as you're saying the merging of the two Exactly right. So let me add another shade of gray to this, <laughs> to this, to this big uh, gray zone. So my current definition of movement, and you're actually the first, or those who are listening, first to hear my latest definition, it's growing, has been growing over the years. So movement for me is a neuromyofascial, skeletal, psycho-emotional, <laughs> social linguistically powered imponderable synergy wow that is a mouthful <laughs> i'm first of all impressed that you could memorize something that long second i want you to break that down if you will into its uh, individual components and explain how that connects for you mm -hmm. so first of all it's it's the, the big context that to me, movement is not, or our body is not a hierarchical system in which the brain is the dictator that determines of what is going on underneath. It is, there is free speech. Every system interacts and influences every other system, and we interact with our environment, and our environment shapes us or shapes our movements, or the language we use shapes our movements. So the neural would be the nervous system. Of course, the nervous system plays a big part in movement. The muscular system is literally moving us forward or whatever we do. So, okay, 
clear too. The fascial system is our largest sensory system. Without the, the integrity in the fascial system, we can't move. It determines how we move in terms of coordination and also body language, gesture, how we express. That's in fascial. Can you explain that connection between the fascial and, and how it's sensory and how it affects how we move? Mm. So accordingly to research, the fascial system has the most receptors, more receptors, mechanoreceptors than the muscular system. In that sense, it is our our largest sensory system, as rich as the retina of the eyes, but compare the size of the eyes with your whole body because fascia is everywhere. It is is the, the matrix in which every other system is embedded. So kinesthesia, and that's something I would like to speak about a little bit later, kinesthesia or our proprioceptive and introceptive sense. So the way we move and the way we feel about movement is very much at home in our fascial system. So really fascia shapes the way we move. And so the next step in that long chain definition? (laughs) So we have the bones and the bones um, give us spaciousness and they also act as levers for the lack of a better word. And then I have the, the, the mental part, the way I think about movement shapes the way I move. Just And, think. and yes. can, you, can we differentiate between uh, the neuro and the mental, right? So you're talking oh, about the, the nervous system versus the, the thinking aspect, the consciousness aspect. Exactly. And the perception, well, hearing, hearing a movement instruction is one thing, but how I think about it, my mental thought processes, that's a completely unique thing. So yes, let's separate them. So nervous system picks up information and then all they go through all of my filters and then I have a thought about what I just heard. So I can talk to 20 people in the class, give them the same instruction, but their thought processes or interpretations will be very different. Excellent. And then also emotional. That was another bit. So the way I feel will change the way I move. On a good day, I move differently than on a bad day. When I feel in my comfort zone, I move differently than when I feel I'm out of my comfort zone. So emotion and then social. I'm traveling a lot for work. And it's very evident if you're a traveler, how your environment can shape or at least contribute to the way you move. Uh, consciously or unconsciously can you then, uh, can you give some specific examples of how the environment can uh, influence or affect or tweak the way you move or move within a space yes maybe think about social norms what is accepted so i live in switzerland when i walk through the streets of zurich so the, the financial hub in switzerland 
for a man to sway his hips from side to side is not so socially accepted. But then when I go to, I just came back from Africa a little while ago from Tanzania, and there was a lot of, you know, freedom of movement in in a very different way than, say, the streets of Zurich. (laughs) And then I also have my latest edition here, and it's Linguistically Powered. Words are really powerful, and I think they very much shape the way we move our own and and other people's words. Can you explain how you feel that those two interact? (laughs) I can give you an example, and it's so memorable. Um, It was quite a while ago, but I had a course, or we had a course, and it was called Pilates Power. And just that description, then, of course, the description of the course was accordingly. And when people came into the course, they expected Pilates power and they behaved accordingly. Everything was about power. And then as I changed my mind and the system evolved, I was like, oh, this whole course is not about power. I what Why I gave it the name was more, you know, to make it progressive. I was like, oh, it's actually about integration. So I left the content exactly the same and just we changed the title to Pilates Integration, worded the script differently, and it was like a different course. People came in with a different attitude, the different expectations, their, their, their movements had a different quality, and all we did, we changed the language. Mm. Now... The the analytical side of my brain says that the the language is kind of the intersection point of the neuro and the mental side of your equation there, right? Because that is when, when the words come in and then you process them. That's the exact example you gave, actually. Exactly. I would also include emotion. Because we have a different emotional response to words. So, yeah, you you got that exactly right. Hmm. And I just add my last word, because I think it's really important, imponderable. (laughs) Movement as a whole body event is actually quite imponderable, no matter how much we dissect it. So that that quote of the, the whole is more than the sum of its parts I think that's movement. You you try to explain the nervous system. Okay. But if you disregard the rest, it's not whole. Yeah. It's fragmented. There's also something, there's a complexity to movement that is totally underestimated. And they talk about on the computer science end of things and trying to get robots to perform simple actions like lifting an arm. That can be done, but to, for instance, to track a ball that's moving through the air and then catch it is exceptionally difficult, even though we accomplish such a feat fairly simply. Like, it does not require a lot of training to catch a softly thrown ball, but it is a lot of complexity goes behind that movement. So, in a way, it is, yeah, imponderable how the depth to the complexity behind what what these simple actions or seemingly simple actions uh, we undertake. Completely. So movement is clearly a passion of yours. And I'm curious, in your experience, what are some misconceptions that massage therapists tend to have about the role of movement in their work? 
Okay, so first, maybe let's say that in the last few years, I observed and heard something that that makes me really happy. I actually think we move closer together or there is more of a collaborative spirit and mutual appreciation for each other's professions and also contributions to holistic healthcare. So I think we are definitely moving into a very, very good direction. (laughs) A misconception... And I think it's mostly unintentional, is something I will call, I don't know how to say this very nicely, so I'm just going to say it's a little bit trivialization of movement. Yes, it's recognized, but its intricacy is not quite um, fully appreciated. And sometimes I think this can happen when movement or a movement modality is judged by the outside and maybe a very good thing so everyone who is listening knows what I mean by when I say don't judge the movement book by its cover is to actually do a movement I'm very sure everyone has done before and I want to do it a little bit differently and it's very simple it's a four-point kneeling exercise what do you think should we should we try this movement experiment let's do it Okay, excellent. Okay, good. So if you're listening, um, you need to go into a four-point kneeling position. So on your knees, on your hands, knees underneath the hips, hands underneath the shoulders. So I'll just give you a moment to find yourself a suitable spot on the floor. And then all fours. And your, um, your intention is to have the pelvis in a centered alignment, meaning the lower back is in its natural lordosis, the upper back is in its natural kyphosis, and the neck is an extension of your upper back. So your spine is elongated and well aligned. Okay, now just hold this position for a moment. I'm sure you have done that before. What are you thinking now? Hmm. Okay. Now let's do this. In four-point kneeling, lift your feet just off the floor. So engage your hamstrings. Lower your feet, press the top of your feet and your shins against the floor. Now press firmly. On a scale zero to 10, 10 is your maximum, make it an eight. So make it really firm. Can you feel something in your abdominals? If you just thought or um, said (laughs) they engage, that would be awesome. So they should engage on a reflex basis. Release the top, the pressure off the top of your feet. Lift your feet off the floor again. Now that abdominal tone goes right down. Press the top of the feet down again, but make it very light. Make it a two out of 10. Still feel your abdominals engage a bit. Yes, but very lightly. Lift the feet again and do it one more time. So firmly press the top of the feet onto the floor. Now you're engaging your quadriceps muscles or what Tom calls the lower portion of your superficial front line. And on a reflex basis, your abdominals engage. And if everything goes well in your body, They engage from the inside out, from the transverse abdominus to the obliques, maybe even rectus abdominus a little bit isometrically. 
if you press very lightly, do that again, very, very light. If everything goes well, that's more transverse abdominals, should be sufficient. That force is transferred to the lower back via the deepest layer of the thoracolumbar fascia, which acts as a segmental stabilizer. So four-point kneeling is not <laughs> one thing. It can be a deep stabilizing exercise or more a global strengthening exercise. Now, either sit back, rest, or do one more thing with me. Bring your awareness to your hands. Okay, you are weight-bearing. Now, feel the difference. Press your thumbs into the floor firmly. And then press your hands together as if you would want to squeeze the floor between your hands, yet keeping your hands in the same place, so it's stationary. So thumbs pressed down, hands together. Chances are you feel your pecs or you feel your front arm lines, if you're thinking anatomy trends. Now release that pressure and that pulling together and bring the weight to the outside of your hands. Thumbs, index fingers very light. You feel the arch of your hands lift. Your forearms spiral inwards, the shoulders outwards. That means your elbow creases point 45 degree forward. And now press your hands apart as if you'd want to stretch the floor between your hands. And if everything goes well, you feel your back arm lines engaged from the little finger up the back of the arm, across the shoulder blades to the other arm. And then you can relax and sit back. It's, it, it seems so simple. It's a four-point kneeling position. Everyone knows it. And half the people in a class don't even listen. Yet, just by changing pressure, intensity, pulling, pushing, little finger versus thumb, you turn this into a completely different exercise. I hope that was a somatic experience, not just an intellectual <laughs> journey. In, the, in my current position, I didn't actually have the opportunity to get down into a kneeling stance while you did this. However, I projected my, my experience in the current position I was in. And even, even just feeling it in my body with, uh, through imagery, um, I can feel the, uh, the trains of, of engagement. And, and the thing that occurred to me as you were talking about this is that what you're showing is how even something that seems simple or, as you said before, trivial, has these different layers to it that not only uh, have to do with uh, educating the, the body how to engage, but also educating the mind and the person of how to connect with their body. And any massage therapist who is worth their salt knows the value of being able to educate your clients. The work that you do in the massage room, if it's only the the benefit they receive from just the physical friction of your hands on their skin, that's a very limited way of approaching working with people. And some of the most lasting and beneficial effects we can have come through education. So it just it's, it points to the 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 impact, the actual impact that one can have uh, utilizing movement. Exactly. Hmm. Mm. Is there a way to 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 dive down even a little bit more succinctly or more specifically in how 
massage therapists can can utilize movement in their work? Three ways. The the first one is you need to walk the talk. You need to actually do it yourself to to not only talk about its value, but feel its value and then speak from within. And that's already convincing. And then the other thing is to, I really would, I would encourage a, a body work practitioner to, to do a little bit of what I did when I did the structural integration certification. Educate yourself in the realms of movement somehow. It doesn't need to be a full comprehensive education. So there is the, the, the tools are there to teach a client like just what we just did, but from, a, from the perspective of body-minded movement. It, it's really valuable and it can be small and with few, I'll say, exercises, you can actually achieve a lot and then teach or talk about movement so the person feels inspired. And that's maybe the most important thing. It's not what we do on the mat or what a massage therapist might do in terms of movement with their client in their clinic. It's can we evoke movement love? Can we make, strengthen the desire for movement in a person so they are going out and they will not take the car for, you know, to go to the supermarket, they will take the stairs. Like, can, this is this is movement medicine. It's not what's happening on the mat. It's happening what's happening outside of it. So, yeah, to strengthen the joy for movement. Yeah. And go, go away from movement is a necessity. Educating yourself about movement allows you to inspire people about movement because then you can speak to it from an informed place and from an embodied place, someone from experience. It's so much more convincing. People know that you own it if you, as you said, walk the walk. Um, I also think it's really important, you know, because a lot of massage therapists want to, they want to be really conscious and they should be about staying within their scope of practice. And this is a piece that I think is important. You know, a lot of massage therapists will say, oh, stretching and movement, and all these things are outside. I, it's about my hands on, on, on bodies. And, and yes, it is that. But if you want to find ways to expand your ways of helping clients, uh, learning, whether it's taking the step that you took where you go and take a certification course, um, but finding ways to educate yourself so that you can stay within your scope of practice and within, within your expertise to actually help these people. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And give, make your treatment more long-lasting because the clients will actively contribute to the success of the treatment. So this may be a little bit of a large question uh, and, 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 and too broad, but I, I want to give it a shot. What is the value of movement in general? Okay. 
<laughs> okay, I think I can sum this very broad question up in almost one sentence. And I'll refer to a talk I heard a few months ago in Germany, and it was by a professor uh, and a doctor. His name is Gerhard Huber, and he did quite an extensive comparison of scientific evidence that looked into the effectiveness of drug treatment when someone is ill versus movement. And movement won by far. So statistically speaking, movement is the most effective preventative medicine and healing aid with the least amount of side effects on the planet. And it's for free. That's not me. That is German evidence. <laughs> Can you, what was the, the, there was movement versus the other one? What was the? Effectiveness of drugs. Of drugs. Drugs. Mm. Oh. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, so movement being more effective than drugs. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure the pharmaceutical companies didn't like that study. I don't think so either. <laughs> Very convincing. And, and he's a German professor, you know, it was correct. <laughs> and did they have a specific set of, I'm sure with these studies, they have very specific sets of movements or movement therapies that they put their, uh, the patients through. Do you know what those studies were or what those movements were? It's, it's, um, it's a thing what I said yesterday, uh, yesterday, just before it was actually not training. It wasn't this training modality or this way of training. It was not cardiovascular versus strength. It was how much people move in their everyday life. So taking the number of hours and then also the diversity of their movements that were determining factors, how well movement is used as preventative medicine and then I'm not sure what they used for or what they looked at exactly for more the, you know treatment um, applications if it was more stretching based or cardiovascular fitness or if they just took a, you know the, the whole collection and then made an estimate I don't know mm -hmm. but the big message he, he conveyed was this we need to inspire people to move more in everyday life because that's the secret so we had a we, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit with like helping clients maintain the benefits beyond just the massage room and i'm curious if you think of any other uh pieces of value for conscious movement training when helping clients learn how to move mm. mm-hmm Maybe let me start there first. Yeah, it's about the value of conscious movement training and it's a, it's a big field and it's obviously it's my passion. So I'm trying to make this, um, <laughs> to contain um, what I want to say. But the, the value of conscious movement training, may that be in a movement setting or as part of a bodywork treatment, is self-confidence, so we can give a, a client more, or maybe, maybe let, let me narrow it even more, somatic confidence. We can instill 
trust in the body through conscious movement. We can foster self-efficacy. So motivate and believe that I have the tools to improve uh, my body or sustain well-being. And then also kinesthetic intelligence, because kinesthetic intelligence will determine if I, if I behave or adapt my behavior towards or away from well-being. Meaning, so my body work practitioner does all the right things to help my body feel better, but then my behavior actually drives me away from well-being. So more kinesthetic <laughs> intelligence <laughs> um, sustained. So do you want me to elaborate on it? Uh, just a touch, yeah. Mm. So I want to take maybe, or I can make this a little bit easier by taking these things into a, a scenario we all no, and it's a bodywork practitioner treating a client with reoccurring episodes of back pain. Very common, so I think we all can relate to that. So pain is complex, and there, that, that's all that's there to say to it. But what's really well established is that if a person believes in their self-healing and believes in their ability to actively contribute to healing, the healing process is better. So they are determining oh, Sorry, it, 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 the internet went up a little now, bit. Now, by lying sorry. on the massage table... Sorry, the internet just like bubbled there real quick. Oh. Um, <laughs> can you start at the low back pain... or Sorry, back pain again. Mm-hmm. So putting it into a scenario? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So let me put this into a scenario we all can relate to. And it's a massage therapist treating a client with reoccurring episodes of back pain. Now, pain perception is complex, so there are no easy answers when it comes to pain, especially back pain. Still, it is well known that a person's belief in their self-healing and their belief in their ability to contribute to healing are determining factors on how well they regain well-being. Now, by lying on a massage table and letting someone else work on my body, I might develop great trust in the body worker's ability. But the question is, how do I develop trust or somatic confidence in my own body? And so through conscious and resource-oriented movement training, that would be an answer. So by consciously training or doing exercises, we can improve our kinesthetic sense, which enhances trust in my body's ability to heal itself because I feel its resources, I feel its strength. And that's promoted through movement mastery. So a lot of people lose trust in their body, especially when they're in pain. So when I feel I can master movement, that gives me confidence. It gives me a sense of stability. It gives me a sense of achievement. It gives me a sense that it's in my own hands to improve my well-being and my body well and truly has the capacity to do so. So practically speaking, if I can teach a client one or two exercises that are functional to them, 
I can strengthen this person's somatic confidence, their trust in their body, and a body worker can make their treatment more long-lasting because the client contributes to their well-being, which is essential to success. Now, there's something else, and it's actually two more things. Small things, but they are big things. So self-efficacy. Determining factor in the the progress of well-being or the the lack of progress. So we need to encourage it even more through, yes, somatic confidence, but we can also encourage self-motivation in other ways. And it sounds a little bit too easy, but it actually works. And it's through the conscious use of deliberate props. We humans, we like to use tools. We like to play with things, hold things in our hands. So when we give a client a special tool that they associate with well-being, that they feel helps them to feel better, and it's also there as a prompter. When they see it, it reminds them my well-being is in my hands, and all I need to do is invest five minutes to do my exercises. It actually works really well. So in Sling's myofascial training, we use soft textured massage balls. They are called a two. And clients start to refer to them as the balls, as they're, they're actually the tool that will improve their well-being. When they're coming home, they see them sit there and like, ah, I need to do my body maintenance practice. The tennis ball which could also be used, is still a tennis ball. It doesn't have the same quality, right? So by by giving something to handle, it can actually enhance self-motivation. And how easy is that for a bodywork practitioner? It's like, okay, here's your self-massage tool. So I'm not there all the time. So you can do your own self-massage treatment. And at the same, you have a prompter. That will remind you um, how good you feel when you do it and after you have done it. And it sounds like there's also the emotional content behind that particular tool. Like a tennis ball is just a tennis ball, but the the special textured ball has like a different feel to it. So on top of the reminder, it has a different quality as you you work with it in your system. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. And so here is one more tip. And it goes back to the 70s when cake mixes came into fashion. Now, this sounds really far-fetched, but I will, I will complete the circle. So when they invented cake mixes, they didn't sell. And they tried to figure out how to make the recipe better, make it tastier. No, 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 it was good, but it didn't sell. And then they removed the eggs and the milk, and suddenly it became a bestseller because then it became my cake because I made a contribution. And so at the studios, we get our clients to buy these balls themselves. They can buy them from us, but they have to invest into these balls and then it's their prop, it's their practice, if that makes sense. And it works too. Absolutely. No, there's a a, a sense of buy-in, right? In order to... In order to make sure that you have the motivation to actually execute on it. You have to, you have to buy in, you have to invest. 
<laughs> and it that even just that threshold provides a little the, the necessary motivation, the necessary momentum uh, to carry through and 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 help that client achieve uh, the the necessary self care that they're looking to uh, to add to their life. Exactly right. Excellent. All right. Well, I've taken a lot of your time, and I know we have a lot more questions to get to, but let's wrap this up so that we can uh, give our listeners a little bit of break, and, and we'll bring you back uh, again for another uh, dive into movement therapy. Terrific. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed the episode, please go ahead and review it on iTunes. And if you have any questions that you had wished I had asked or topics you want me to cover in the future, please visit the website at www.housethepressure.com where you can send me an email and hopefully I can include it. Until next time, be good and be well.